0: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Good evening everyone. I'm Allison Camerota. Welcome to CNN tonight. We just heard the kind of conversation that a lot of us are having at our own dinner tables. Bill Moore talked to Jake Tapper about politics and race and cancel culture and wokeness.
2: How do you define wokeness? Because I hear people use the term all the time and it means something different to to everybody. Well, again, I think it's this collection of ideas
3: that uh, are not building on liberalism, but very often undoing it. I mean... Five years ago, I don't, Abraham Lincoln was not a controversial figure among liberals. We liked him. <laughs> now they take his name off schools and tear down his statues. Really? Lincoln isn't good enough for you?
1: Aren't we all having conversations also where we accidentally step in it? And what conversations do we now feel uncomfortable having because we're afraid to get it wrong? So our panel's going to tackle all of that in just a moment. Also, The Supreme Court hearing challenges to President Biden's student debt relief plan. Some of the conservative justices seem skeptical. So how do their own experiences affect how they see all of this? Is there a solution to the crushing burden of student debt? And why is college so expensive anyway? Plus, listen to this, President Biden and Jill Biden went out to dinner the other night and they both ordered the same thing. Why? what dish was so good that they both had to get it we have a lot to talk about tonight okay so here in the studio with me we have josh barrow host of the very serious podcast and one of our favorite republicans margaret hoover one of our very favorite republicans and one of our very favorite texans Elsie granderson and my estranged work husband, John Berman. <laughs> <laughs> I hope well, one of your very favorite estranged, <laughs> estranged husbands. <laughs> I mean, you know, I do I think I am going to go with one of the very favorite ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, great to have you all here. Okay. Um, I mean, should I just start with, like, this totally loaded question of who thinks wokeness has gone too far?
4: Well, I mean, I think it goes back to Jake Tapper's question, what does wokeness even mean? What does it mean? I, th- I think people throw it around and they mean all sorts of... I mean, I think... The, the Freddie De I think, has the when he writes about this, has the best term to use for it, which is that people are talking about social justice politics, which is a politics that is more focused on people's group identities and marginalized groups and how uh, how societal you know biases and and history affect the way that people uh, get to exist and 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 live based on their membership in different groups. And, and it's I think,
1: best form. Well, In its best form and, it's, best it form and
4: its worst form, and you can worst, you yes. can do that kind of analysis well, or you can do it poorly. I think that's usually what. people... Are talking about when they use the term wokeness? I mean, I guess the other thing is, you know, the, the idea that uh, wokeness can refer to when people are very focused on how statements make people feel rather than on whether the statements are true or not. And again, that can be something that is a bad instinct that causes you to avoid saying things that are true, but it can also be a good instinct that causes you to be sensitive to people. So I, I totally
1: th- understand there's nuance. Yeah. I guess what I'm talking about is when. Roald Dahl's books, you know, when people start removing fat, the word fat or white from Roald Dahl's books, though he wrote it in 1961, but it's time to change them because mm-hmm. those make some people uncomfortable. That is something that, you know, obviously, as you know, um, some Republicans can run with.
5: Well, it's it's not just Republicans. I think Republicans are, are leveraging actually a, a legitimate, not grievance, but gripe that ordinary Americans have, which is that there is um, in some of this analysis, which has come to encompass the word woke when it's used pejoratively, is this sense of intolerance and this sense of, frankly, illiberalism. That somehow there is not a there is no birth for people to work through these issues in a way that is honest and authentic and maybe mess steps in it, as you said, sometimes, but is also learning and instead shuts down the debate because because of the way other people feel. And, and doesn't, doesn't create a space for, frankly, a civil conversation in the public square.
1: LZ, how do you see it?
6: Um, you know, it's interesting that this conversation will start off with Bill Maher. It, because, so his show, Politically Incorrect, is out in the early 90s. Yeah. That's when Neo Soul is very popular. And the word woke is being used quite often in music. For some reason, Bill Maher missed that. Probably because he didn't care about that. The reason why woke is such a conversation piece now is because people have politicized it. Where it originated from, black folks, simply meant to be enlightened, to be aware of your surroundings. Other groups have politicized the word, but those who truly understand its original definition, we still are woke. We're not going to be less woke because the Santa signs something or because Bill Maher makes a joke or because someone redefines our word. That's your definition. That's fine and dandy. But the true definition of the word, we still hold true. And by we, I mean those who are black, who subscribe to a certain belief, which is it's very important to be enlightened so that you understand why we as a people are in the situation that we're in. John? I'm curious what conversations Bill Maher wants
7: to be having that he's not having. Uh, He doesn't seem... Like he's being held back all that much by our colleague, Bill Maher, by the way, by the wokeness that is out there. I read an article today where he had a discussion with Greg Gutfield about about incest porn in his podcast. (laughs) I mean, he he seems to be free to talk about whatever he wants to talk to. And look, that's not for me to judge. He Mm -hmm. seems to have that opportunity. And you putting a date on it when you talk about the 90s, it was interesting. I was thinking about... Philip Roth wrote a book called The Human Stain, which was a a late 90s book. And the whole premise of the book is that a professor uh, basically loses his job, is run out of town because he says something that's deemed offensive, right? This is 1998. So by my math, that's what, 25 years ago. So 25 years ago, they're talking about this. The only difference... Between then and now, maybe that we're all 25 years older, so maybe this is something that's just
6: occurring to some people well, as be, they age. It happened before that. I mean, there's a great song called Wake Up Everybody. Wake Up Everybody, no more sleeping in bed. Like, I listened to that every day growing up as a kid, seven, eight years old. This is the early 80s. I mean, the wide awakes were started by Republicans
8: <laughs> wow.
6: to support President Lincoln. Like, the idea, the concept of being cognizant and being enlightened is being bastardized by people who don't want to be held accountable for behaviors of their grandparents or of their great-grandparents or the greatest generation because, oh, hello, who enforced Jim Crow laws? Which generation enforced those Jim Crow laws? That's what it means to be awake is to put two and two together and say, oh, that's four.
4: I think whether there are things that Bill Maher can't say is the wrong question. I mean, his show—well, now it's real time—but he hosted politically incorrect. His brand for decades has been that he says things that other people feel that they're not supposed to say, and it's been a big part of his success on television. I think the, the reason that the show has been so long-standing and so successful is that he's offering something that other people don't offer, but that there is a market for. Um, and I think it's—and I think it's a reflection that there are things in a broader society and, and within the media and various news organizations, people can't go out and say the things that Bill Maher says. And you know i'm not saying that everyone should run their mouth about everything all the time there's good reasons that if you're a new york times reporter there are you know opinions that you're supposed to keep to yourself but i think that you know that when people when people talk about cancel culture and they say, well, look, you know, here's this person saying this thing and they're not canceled. They're getting more famous than ever. That's true. And I think partly people worry too much about how other people react. If you have something that you think is important and you feel like you shouldn't say it, then maybe the solution is just that, that you should mm-hmm. say it. But also most people are not in Bill Maher's professional position. And a lot of people face consequences that he's not going to face.
1: But in your regular say. life, do yeah. you find yourself holding your tongue in a way that you didn't used to because you're afraid that a conversation is getting too dicey now?
4: Not, well. It's actually it's funny for me because I do this for a living, right? And I actually increasingly just feel like I don't feel like having these arguments in my off time. Um, yeah. So yes.
5: So then you're 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 putting yourself in an ecosystem or in an eco chain or a, a, a silo in a way. I'm not, I'm not you're in a choosing silo. not to engage in the kind of cross pollinating discussion because it's too tiresome.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, sometimes it is tiresome, but I don't know. Why I just feel it, like I'm off the clock. Why is Here's information tiresome, though? <laughs> no, it's
5: not information tiresome. I think what it... What it yeah. Look, I, I think what you're getting at is, is there something different now than there was 20 years ago? Maybe not in the context of sort of the etymology of the... And the, um, the sort of interesting historical context of the word woke... But in the context of what is permissible speech and what is not permissible speech, take the academy. I mean, it was nineteen in the 1950s, William F. Buckley Jr. writes in God and Man at Yale, which is sort of getting at the original sort of la- question about free speech and what's permissible in the academy. And then in the 90s, we, we went through this period of political correctness, as though there was a clamping down of free speech in college campuses, which echoed that same tradition. But that has
6: nothing to do with that is
5: So, um, But in terms, <laughs> yes a, and that's, no, that's, because that's, that's not yours. Your definition, I, that's right. not, that, not the original I, definition I'm of, speaking of the as original
6: you're about. I'm not speaking in terms of what someone else does to the definition to justify their own political understanding. I understand.
1: We're talking about the bastardized version that we're all right. now living. And whether or not uh, we are in the purest uh, version, Elsie. We're I'm, all in the bastardized I'm,
5: version.
6: Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not living in the bastardized version <laughs> of the world. I'm telling you that Nearest Green created Jack Daniels. I'm telling you that it was black women who helped send a white man into space. I'm not sitting up here allowing the false stories that we've been taught as kids to dictate how I view myself, my people, or my life in this country. And I think there are a lot of people who still hold true to the original definition of woke and not getting caught up in the way that people have hijacked the definition to fit their own political agenda. Well, this, is, this
4: is why I think the word is a bit of a distraction, right. because so much of what people are talking about this has nothing to do with the African-American experience. It's, yeah. it's been broadened out to so in the many areas of But I, but I, so I think, I think so people people use the word in an
7: unserious way. I think they know That's that right. it lacks definition, and <laughs> they know that it sets people off, which is why they use it. Uh, but I, th- I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right.
1: But don't you think culturally we have, obviously, as every generation has to change our language and we are having to watch what we say more now than we did previously in our lives and other generations did. I find this with my teenage daughters. I mean, I even when I have conversations with my teenage daughters and talk to them about being a teenager, they think that I they, they think that I was like a victim of the patriarchy. And that yeah, I, like, yeah. only saw myself through the male gaze. Well, like, you this is been. how we, this is how they talk to me now. So, I mean, I, I just find all of these conversations to be a little bit more fraught than they were 10 years ago. That That is the case.
5: I mean, and this is quantifiable. There are social scientists who have documented how speech, particularly in the academy, and that was my maybe long-winded way of saying, in academia in particular and on college campuses, exactly, you know, Jonathan Haidt has done great work documenting how um, the impact of frankly, a, a dampening of free speech on college campuses. Of course, you're free to say anything, but will you keep your job? Will, will you be able to stay in your class? Will you not be bullied? There has been an experience that, that is worse, probably heightened by social media, probably heightened by um, the, the polarization that we have in our online experience that has been increased and, frankly, heightened during COVID. Um, these are real things, and that's why there's resonance politically on both the left and the right for
4: it. I- And I think you definitely see it in the press now, too. I mean, there's been this brouhaha at the New York Times over certain coverage from their science desk on youth gender medicine... Um, And a lot of the arguments against the way the New York Times has been covering it deal only glancingly with -hmm. the the reporting, which I think has been very careful and balanced. It is much more about how the reporting makes people feel, how the reporting might affect people based on what what groups they are in, which political actors might be emboldened by the reporting, which are not actually questions about the quality of the reporting itself. We saw the same thing with the lab leak. I mean, we have this new uh, report out with low confidence about the idea that COVID came from a lab leak. There are other government reports with low confidence that it emerged naturally. We'll probably never know where it came from. But we went through this period, especially when Trump was president, where basically when people tried to talk about that, they were shouted down like it was a conspiracy theory. They were told that talking about it was going to foment violence against Asian Americans. And again, these were not arguments that went to the direct question of where did COVID come from? Mm-hmm. And so I think that I think this has been a change, mostly a negative change that we've seen in the media where we've gotten away from pursuit of factual questions. I mean, the letter from, from GLAAD, the, the LGBT uh, uh, lobby group, to The New York Times literally criticized them for doing just asking questions reporting. What, what reporters do is ask questions, and sometimes the questions are uncomfortable, and sometimes the questions have uncomfortable political implications. But I do think that's been a shift that's related to this increasing focus on the way people feel based on their group membership. I think
6: that the word woke is interesting that you characterize it that way, and I agree with you. Mm-hmm. But it feels to me that those who use the bastardized version of woke are the ones who are sensitive to being the snowflakes, because they don't want the true information getting out there because they don't want kids going home and rethinking their family tree. I think they're being sensitive to that. There's a reason why when you look at the state I live in now, Texas, trying to rewrite how slavery is described, saying that people were like, I think it was uh, uh, involuntarily displaced instead of kidnapped (laughs) and forced into enslavement. Like there are different ways that you're looking around now that Republicans, mostly but not only, are using their positions in state as well as government as well as federal politics to try to make sure that they don't feel bad about the history of their forefathers, and they try to blame black people by saying you're being too woke. When the reality is, you hid this from us. You hid all the towns that were burned down from us. You hid, as I mentioned earlier, the history of. of of NASA and how this collection of black geniuses came up with the right formula. I look at Star Wars, not a single black person in space. I didn't know for years that black women created that formula. That was because you didn't want us to feel a certain way about ourselves. But more importantly, you didn't want to feel that way about yourself.
1: Friends, thank you very much for all that. We have to get to this. We have some breaking political news. CNN projects that Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot, will not be back for a second term in office. Paul Vallis, who was head of the schools in Chicago, Philadelphia and New Orleans, and Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, will advance to a runoff election for Chicago mayor on April 4th. Nine candidates were on the ballot for Chicago mayor, but since none of them won more than 50 percent of the vote, uh, I hope I'm saying this right, Vallis, and Johnson will face off. Lightfoot found herself with few allies in her bid for a second term and a host of powerful interests aligned against her. The police and teachers union backed other candidates. All right. Stick around, everybody, because when we come back, we want to talk about the big debate over student loan forgiveness. Some people feel burdened, of course, with crushing uh, loans for decades, and the Supreme Court is taking this up today. Will millions of dollars of student loans be forgiven? That's what the Supreme Court is deciding after hearing oral arguments today in two cases challenging President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. The outcome could drastically affect the lives of 40 million borrowers. The plan, which could provide up to $20,000 of debt relief, has been on hold for months after a lower court blocked it. Okay, let's bring in our panel. Margaret, do you like the idea of student loan forgiveness?
5: Well, look. There's there's a lot of ways to fix the student loan, uh, the student debt problem. There is massive student debt in this country. There's too much of it. College costs too much. It's gotten increasingly expensive. There are a lot of reasons why. Um, so that I think is a separate question than whether an executive action by a president should wipe out all student loan that's on all student loans that's on the books. And the question, the constitutional question that the court is dealing with, about whether there's a separation of powers question that if you're going to do this, Congress should pass a law rather than a president passing executive action in order to wipe all student debt clean. But you do you I like President yeah. Biden's approach to this. Yeah. No, of course not. Do I recognize that student debt is a problem and a, a, poli- a serious and difficult policy problem that ought to be tackled by our representatives at the federal level? Yes. And
1: do you think they would ever do that?
5: I wouldn't. Look, <laughs> I am not Pollyannish but nor am I a cynic. Did I think that marriage equality would pass at a federal level and become codified into law signed by the president passed with Republicans and Democrats in both the House and the Senate? I didn't think that, but I, I worked for it and it happened. So look, it takes all of us putting our nose to the grindstone and trying to get the really frustrating process of legislating policy through. That's what
1: you do. Josh, do you like the idea?
4: No. I mean, well, first of all, it's, it's not legal. Um, <laughs> there's a reason that the Biden administration spent a year trying to get Congress to send them a law that would have canceled student debt. Because this, this cockamamie idea that this 2003 law that allows a response to medical emergencies allows you to cancel hundreds of billions of dollars of student debt on the basis of the COVID emergency 3 plus years after the, after the start of the pandemic the idea that this is this is a response to the COVID emergency is just is just nonsense as a policy idea we've already seen the, the court reject efforts to do something similar when the CDC issued an eviction moratorium you there are important areas of policy here but the, the the executive branch can't just freelance especially to spend several several hundred billion dollars and i think part of the reason that people think so weirdly about this issue is that they, they don't feel like it's it's real money because it's not the government actually sending out checks. They're basically crossing lines off piece of paper. But all Meaning money that is just pieces of paper. They would give you.
1: Paper. They would give you a tax deduction.
4: Well, that they that you don't that that payments that you were going to have to make back to the government, you no longer have to make. And so basically the government foregoes several hundred billion dollars of revenue over many years. Oh, and that's an expense. It's equivalent as if we as if we sent checks out to people. Gotcha. And if the if the president just woke up one morning and was like, I'm going to send out several hundred billion dollars in checks without a particular authorization from Congress, people would be like, that's illegal, you can't do that. Now, there, the, with this Supreme Court case, there are some complicated legal issues about standing, about whether anybody actually is legally allowed to sue in the Supreme Court over this. I don't really have a view on that. So it's possible that the court will end up deciding that it's not their place to rule on whether this is legal or not. But, no, this is lawless with the administration.
1: Gentlemen, anybody have strong feelings about this? I oh, will tell right. if you.
7: If you had ask like, a 24-year-old version of me about this, you know, I would be like, yeah, it's awesome. You know, because that was, I was, what, two years into 12 years or however many it was paying off But now
1: that you're a selfie middle-aged day. man, how do you feel? You know, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm,
7: I'm, I'm, I think it's, what, the interesting question, I think, is will... People in their 20s or early 30s or mid 30s, as the case may be on some of this, that feel like something is being taken away from them now. That's the interesting political question to me. Now that President Biden has put it out there as a political move, whether it was justified or not, and he clearly had doubts because he took a long time to do Mm -hmm. this. Whether or not in doing it now people feel like they've had something taken away meaning, a little bit. Meaning
1: the people who paid their debt. The no, who paid no their I
7: loans. mean I mean students. I mean young people. I mean people in their 20s who have student debt now who thought they might have it forgiven. Oh, if I they see. now blame Republicans and the Republic or the conservative court for taking that away from them politically, is that something that will help President Biden? I'm not... 100 percent sure, because I don't think it's quite as tangible as Josh was just sort of suggesting as some other things. But I am very, very curious. Just textually, one—I I, look, I think it is problematic. And as I said, I think Joe Biden thought it was problematic from the beginning. The 2003 law is written in a pretty squishy way. It is written in a squishy way that if you want to be a textualist, and they always seem to in certain cases but not in others, you could look at the text of that law and say, OK, maybe it allows for it. Perhaps if they wanted, this court, in this case, I don't think will want to.
1: I thought that you were referring to the complaint that I hear from some people, which is, hey, I had to pay my student debt. Let's make them have to pay theirs. Why do they get a free ride? I had to pay my student debt. I hear that complaint sometimes.
6: I hear that complaint, too. First, I do appreciate what the president tried to do to help people. You know, we all were here for the Great Recession. We saw how the federal government sprung up because... This business or industry was too big to fail. This was too big to fail. These people need help. Tons of money going out to rescue businesses that were in need. And every single time it's time to rescue people, ah, ah, is it legal? Is it this? Is it that? So I appreciate the effort. I think the most important thing for the administration to do and for Congress to do isn't necessarily focusing on student loan cancellation, but rather to figure out why so much money has to be spent for college in the first
1: place. Oh, course. for sure. I mean, that's your point. Percent. A thousand percent. It's so prohibitively expensive yes. for so many people, and and there's also an argument that by by doing this student um, debt forgiveness, student loan forgiveness. It only encourages it's the a problem. Right. But
4: this is, also, this is the weird thing about the focus on cancellation. If you go and spend more money on Pell Grants or other mm. things that make it cheaper for go to, people to go to college in the future, more people will go to college and you get more education. If you give money to people who already chose to go to college and already spent the money on it, that's great for them, but it doesn't cause anybody to get an additional college degree. It's not education spending. That's not true. It actually.
6: Why? That's, that's not necessarily true.
4: Why would people go and get a, a college degree based on the fact that somebody else received retrospective relief? They they, well, th- they hope there'll be another cancellation in fifteen years. Well,
6: I I know for a fact that because I was student loan free, I was then able to have extra extra money to pay for my son's education, so that he wasn't saddle with debt. There isn't just a simple you know, disconnect where it's like, oh, well, you're free and you're in a silo, and that means your, your standing in life is not affected by anyone else's. That free money could also help feed people. That free money could actually help house people. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why it was decided it was an emergency, because those student loan debt, those payments, are, are taking food off people's tables.
4: That was that was the situation in 2020, 2021 when the economy was depressed if you if no, you put money in a, a situation. No, no, <laughs> it, no when, when the economy is at capacity and you send out hundreds of billions of dollars of extra money, it doesn't create hundreds of billions of dollars worth of extra goods and services. It just drives up the price. Mm-hmm. We're in a situation back in 2020, 2021, we needed huge stimulus for the economy. The government actually overshot, which is a reason that we ended up with 8% inflation. And now they need to find ways to to destimulate the economy. And so that's part of, you know, I understand understood politically why the president did this student loan announcement. And even though I think it was illegal, I actually think it was a savvy political choice. I think he came out ahead by doing it. But it was it was not what was called for by the economic situation at that time. It was going to tend to push inflation upward, along with several other things that were also pushing inflation up. And it's really important right now, both as an economic matter and as a political matter for the president to try to get inflation down.
1: I think it's interesting also to look at the justices and their own backgrounds when it comes to their student loans or their education. So the justices all make close to $275,000 for the their salaries. That doesn't include things like book deals and other forms of revenue. Justice Thomas wrote in his 2007 memoir about having to take out student loans and that he and his young family were struggling and he was still paying them off at age 43 when he became a Supreme Court justice. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor went to Princeton and Yale on a scholarship. Think that's interesting. Four justices have tax-free savings accounts for their kids. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts has six hundred thousand in one of them. Brett Kavanaugh has three hundred thousand. I just think that's interesting to, in, in whether or not that somehow colors their decision making. But in I, most well, cases, look. In most cases, the way um, the justices,
5: especially at this elite level, at the at of the you know the third branch of government, the judicial branch, their jurisprudence, their judicial philosophy is. Um, you know, of course, they have their own personal experiences, but it's, it's actually not informed by their personal experiences. It's informed by their approach to the law, their approach to the Constitution. I mean, that's and how their, it should be. And I don't believe that, but sometimes then, I just you know. don't
1: know if their own experiences. And, 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 and so,
5: and I think like if you if you look at what their comments were in this in this case today in this hearing today, it it was about separation of powers, the role of Congress, the role of the executive branch, n- none of them were like, oh, well, I had a lot of doubt. I understand what you're saying. They, they, that, the constitutional question before them has nothing to do with their own personal experience. But
6: how do you separate those? How do you separate your lived experience from your interpretation of what's on a piece of paper?
5: That's what being a judge is. Yeah, that's but do the you definition. Always,
6: that's the definition, but do you think it's successful? Do you think this particular court in particular, do you think it's successful in separating its lived experience with the words on a piece of paper.
5: I think every single justice will tell you that their job in the in the judiciary is to not adjudicate oh, their own I personal mean, experience. We know
6: the job yeah. description, oh, yeah. you know, but I mean, are like, they actually doing it? Yeah. I That's think the yeah. way we got
4: <laughs> ne- Neil Gorsuch, a conservative justice, writing yeah. the opinion in Bostock, expen- extending federal civil rights protections for sexual orientation and gender identity, it was this, like, Uh, basically extremely nerdy look at, you know, this is exactly what these words say. And if you fire Bob for having a relationship with a man and you don't fire Anne for having a relationship with a man, then you have discriminated based on sex. That, whatever that was, that was not about Neil Gorsuch's (laughs) personal (laughs) experience. I mean,
1: like, look, ideally that is supposed to be, I just don't even know subconsciously sometimes if we're colored by our own experiences. But either way, I take both of your points. Thank you very much. Now to this. (laughs) Fox News Channel. Under a microscope after revelations that their top hosts knowingly pushed Donald Trump's election lies. But is any of it surprising to the people who worked there, like I did? And two of my former Fox News colleagues, including Margaret, are going to join me to discuss this. It was only under oath that Rupert Murdoch, the chairman of Fox Corporation, had to finally admit that many of his hosts endorsed Donald Trump's election lies. He also admitted that he keeps conspiracy theorists on the air because it makes him money. And that he tried to silence some of the journalists who were actually telling the truth about Donald Trump's loss. This has all come to light thanks to Dominion's $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox. Some people find all of this shocking, but not those of us who worked there, as I did. And so did my next guests. Connor Powell was a Fox News foreign correspondent. He's now freelancing for CNN. Margaret Hoover was a regular contributor on The O'Reilly Factor. It's great to see both of you this evening. Connor. always great to see you. So, you know, this, has you. Come, this, this dirty laundry of Fox's has come to light because of the Dominion um, lawsuit, the depositions of which have been made public. Um, you know how they operated. Is there anything in this lawsuit that has surprised you?
2: There's nothing about this lawsuit that surprised me. The only thing that would have surprised me is if the primetime host had actually told the truth during this entire thing. And the fact that, like, Rupert Murdoch has tried to say that it wasn't Fox News, but it was these primetime hosts, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, um, Tucker Carlson, if they're not Fox News, then who is? I mean, when Murdoch tries to say that it wasn't Fox News... The very people who are the most identifiable people of Fox News were on air spreading misinformation, spreading these election lies, and Murdoch allowed it. He not only allowed it when people told him to stop and that it was going to get the company into trouble, um, as the head of the organization, not only of Fox News, but of the larger Fox company, he continued to allow it. So he allowed Fox News to do this. It wasn't some rogue reporter or rogue anchor. It was the entire network led by the very biggest stars.
1: And not only that, Connor. one of the myths I always found about Fox was that there's some bright line between the news side and the primetime opinion side. I worked on both sides of that so-called line, and I found the journalism rules to be often non-existent, basically. I mean, or at least they, even on the so-called news side, they fudged uh, them under Roger's direction, Roger Ailes' direction, then the chairman, um, so often that they were sometimes non-existent. But you were on the straight news side. What did you find in your in what they, your assignments and your reporting?
2: Yeah, I, I was fortunate. I was halfway around the world most of my career covering stories that very few people at Fox wanted to actually physically be there. And so I didn't have to watch the channel. I very rarely had to interact with the executives because I was halfway around the world in different time zones. But I had the experience where when people pushed back on what I was reporting, I stayed with what I knew were facts. And I stayed in my own lane in terms of what was opinion and what was factual reporting. I know a lot of reporters there who see themselves as hard news, straight reporters but also feel the pressure to get on air with stories that will attract the the management of the company. I, I'm sure you've seen that as well. And, and that's one of the biggest problems there is if you want airtime, the majority of the people there have to sort of toe this conservative commentary line. And that's true for the news people, as it obviously is promoted and true for the primetime people.
1: You're so right. And a lot of the bias does come through story selection there. Margaret, um, has anything surprised you in the revelations from this Dominion lawsuit? You know, I left uh,
5: Fox News in 2012 and continued, of course, to observe how they were covering the stories. And I actually think it got worse over time. Um, it wasn't great when I was there. Of course, I was on not the news side. I was on the opinion side. I was there to give my opinion and be a commentator. I did always have a very clear sense that there was a certain opinion, a certain point of view that was rewarded. Uh, you got to show up more and be on more shows and get a bigger contract if you had a certain point of view. And, and I was a little bit insulated from that, um, sort of chose to be, because that's what felt authentic to, to who I am. But it got worse. And what became clear during the 2016 and then 2020 election is there was a point of view that almost was indiscernible, from the Republican National Committee's point of view. And it it just seemed as though Fox News was the official spokesperson for the Trump administration. And what you see in these documents is that's exactly what they were. There is literally no difference, no firewall, nothing separating the two of them. They were arms in and of each other.
1: I mean, furthermore, when there are real journalists who are trying to report the facts on some of these lies, this is in the Dominion lawsuit about Shepard Smith. When Shepard Smith... Attack the Trump administration's lies on air, Rupert Murdoch emailed Suzanne Scott, who's one of the presidents, and Jay Wallace, another one of the presidents, calling it, quote, over the top and telling them need to chat to him. So, in other words, you know, th- there's this chilling effect when one of the journalists is trying to, as you know, Connor, tell the truth about something. Sometimes management says that's too much truth. And so so, Connor, I know that you had a similar experience. Like, what was your final straw?
2: My final straw was it was I was slowly starting to see people interfere in reporting that I had never heard from in my entire life. And I was covering um, the embassy move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in 2017 and Fox blew it up. They sent a ton of anchors. It was a huge deal for the embassy uh, with the embassy move. And I went into Gaza to cover that side of the story. We all predicted and and knew that there was going to be violence. And after the embassy moved, of course, there was a huge rash and breakout of violence. And about 36 hours after the embassy moved, Fox still had all of these anchors praising the Trump administration and President Trump for this move. And they were they had editorial producers telling reporters to stop talking about the violence that had erupted and just to talk about the great and glorious embassy decision move. And, And that was when I sort of said to myself. They're, they're coming for all of the reporters at this point. They're going to try to inject as much editorial as they can. And for the most part, before that, I had always been able to push back. And I began to see more and more of that. And that's when I said, I got to get out of here.
1: Yeah. Connor Powell, uh, I really appreciate your candor. Thanks so much for explaining what your experience was. I think it's really valuable. Margaret, as always, thanks so much for explaining yours as well. Okay, coming up, uh, President Biden and the First Lady ordered the exact same dish at a popular restaurant in Washington, DC. Why? Isn't that a huge waste? When they could have tried two different dishes? Our panel has very strong thoughts about this one. It's no, no, no. different, different. But thank you for chairing yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden have Washington buzzing because you won't believe this. They ordered the same dish at a restaurant. I'm not kidding. The Washington Post reports that they went to the popular Red Hen restaurant in D.C. and they both ordered the rigatoni with sausage. We're back with Josh Barrow, Margaret Hoover, LZ Granderson, and John Berman. Who does this, guys? They're out what? of touch. <laughs> the Bites
6: are out of touch with America. They're eating yes. the same yes. dish why, at a restaurant. Why is this a story? Because if she were to cook with a Tony, would they not both be eating the same dish anyway? Yes, that's why like when
1: you go to a restaurant, you but, order different things so you can sample each other's.
6: But, but I uh, thought you went to the restaurant so you can get something to eat. No,
1: no <laughs> LZ. You order
4: what you want. No. If you and your, and your dining partner both want the same thing, you both order the same thing. That's the libertarian view, and the Republican Party (laughs) has moved from that. (laughs) They're they're trying to take away our freedoms. They're trying to take (laughs) away your (laughs) restaurant. Yes.
1: Yes. No, it's that you coordinate with your date so that you can both share different meals and have bites of different things. But But
4: that depends, like, have you been there before? Is it, you know, are they ordering something really unusual, or is is it just like a hamburger? Like, you don't always need to taste everything that's on the table. There is
5: one conclusion that we can draw from this. The one conclusion is that dish must be extraordinary. I agree. Because... If they both ordered it knowing there is a look full other it. menu of it. options
1: doesn't this it look rigatoni delicious? must be the best paradise. rigatoni in all of is Washington
5: that, that so DC chef
7: boyardee
1: No guys <laughs> this is the red Hen rigatoni with fennel sausage and red sauce and pecorino cheese. Here's That's the thing: the I bet you the so Bidens good.
7: can get a reservation there again if they want to go back and get something. Else.
1: I think they, they could so. probably have carryout. I bet. I bet <laughs> they'd even deliver to the White House. That's my guess. What's the guys? <laughs> so we're going to talk about the rest of the menu because I'm also interested in this. They also split a chicory salad. I think I'm opposed to that. I think you should. each Oh, salad.
4: I like a chicory salad. Oh no, I'm fine right? with the
1: chicory salad. You should each salad. Would you share
4: it though? Oh well, what? how <laughs> big is it?
1: <laughs> Josh, you're asking a lot <laughs> of They're questions. They're not wasting. They don't want to waste. But um then they also got this interesting appetizer. Grilled bread and butter. That's a lot of carbs, Mr. President. Well, I hope they're not
7: charging extra for the grilled they bread are. and butter. They should, $8. You should get bread and butter.
1: That's a, No, it's grilled Well, then my issue is
7: with the Red Hen, not the Bidens. They should be giving you bread and butter oh. as
1: part of the experience. It's $8, John.
7: What if you just get the bread and not the butter? Is it like four fifty?
1: I don't know. I, think I bet the it's good butter. butter. It's probably it's good butter. Oh, it is. It's also... It's, it's special it's butter. Sweet. It is. It's It's, it's butter. like mm. sweet Got honey in it. Butter butter that delicious. It does sound delicious. Is why are so we mad at,
4: at this? Like, is this a sponsored segment for <laughs> the A segment brought to you by... Well,
5: so, I mean, apropos of our previous conversation. I mean, there's one way editorial selection could slam this. You know, this could be... This segment could be used at some news networks as an opportunity to slam the Bidens for hypocrisy. At other networks could that's be good. used to demonstrate how meritorious the bidens are of, of <laughs> sharing their dishes so you know here we're just going to play it straight the we're going to go half and
7: eating half eating
1: habits <laughs> you're so splitting right splitting evenly here exactly. we're not really that interested in the buns. we're just interested in the rigatoni, the rigatoni. that's <laughs> where this is actually it's just great. a food segment. do you ever night. order the same
9: dish no, as your husband
1: i don't never, that's never. the whole point is that we always purposely order different things and then we swap like halfway through Unless like, it's extraordinary, well, Unless I mean, you I maybe there. now, maybe now I'll try to order the same we thing. We
6: do oh. not swap. Did you yes. swap with your husband? Rarely. Rarely. Yeah, I don't do really? yeah. that.
1: Oh, sure, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I find,
4: yeah. in general, well, people overthink. People overthink the menu at restaurants. Like, they, they sit down like it's the last meal they're ever going to have. Yeah. Well, and they, like, stare at it trying to optimize as much. Like, that's what I do. You have to look at the menu and find something you're like, oh, that, that sounds tasty. And then you order it. And then you can go back to talking to your dining companions. And, oh, you know, Josh, if you, you order the wrong thing, then you have lunch again tomorrow.
1: You make it sound so simple, Josh. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. Thank you all very much. Meanwhile, we want to get to this story. Tennessee's governor plans to sign a controversial anti-drag show bill into law as soon as it arrives on his desk, he says. But there's a decades-old photo sparking charges of hypocrisy. We'll explain next. Tennessee's Republican governor, Bill Lee, says he plans to sign a controversial bill that will ban drag shows in the presence of children. This is... Curious in part because in what is believed to be a high school yearbook photo, Bill Lee appears dressed in women's clothing and wearing a wig. This was posted on social media. CNN has not been able to verify this photo. Lee's office calls this costume a, quote, lighthearted school tradition that should should not be conflated with what he calls, quote, obscene sexualized entertainment, end quote. This bill is a serious issue for some transgender parents.
7: I'm literally not allowed legally in the state of Tennessee because of this so-called drag bill, because it prohibits people who dress different from their biological sex. This is real. This is affecting our lives. There are transgender Americans and transgender children who are fleeing states. My family has an escape plan. It's not It's not a joke. Most people have never had a conversation with a transgender person, and yet they're more than happy voting and legislating on it
1: the anti-drag bill has passed in the tennessee house and is now awaiting approval from the republican controlled senate meanwhile another near collision of two airplanes it's the fifth this year why does this keep happening that's next The FAA now investigating the fifth runway near miss this year. This one was at Boston's International Airport. A private jet started to take off without clearance. This was last night, while a JetBlue flight was preparing to land on an intersecting runway. According to Flight Radar 24, the two planes came within 565 feet of each other. Here's the air traffic control recording.
0: It'll land 4 right, JetBlue 206.
1: Jet Am I heading maintain
0: three thousand? Am I heading up to? Sorry, sitting on the altitude. Three
10: thousand.
0: Three thousand. Jet two zero six.
1: Yeah, I like how calm they are. This scare in Boston was just a day after a close call between two commercial planes in Burbank, California, and a few weeks ago, you'll remember in Honolulu, a United Airlines seven hundred and seventy seven jet crossed a runway as a smaller cargo plane was landing. And then days before that, an American Airlines flight at JFK crossed in front of a Delta plane trying to take off. And then there was the near miss in Austin where a FedEx plane almost landed on top of a Southwest flight. I want to bring in our aviation expert, David Susi, who always tries to make me feel better about these things. But David, (laughs) I'm starting to think these are not all anomalies. It's starting to feel like there's one of these a week that we report on.
8: It seems like they're a lot more often and that is only because they are more often right now. Uh, if you look at the traffic that's going on in Boston right now, that Boston was at 12,000 flights in January, 2021. And now it's come over to up to 29,000 in January of 2023. So it's nearly three times as much traffic and they're spacing the airplanes a lot closer together. They're trying to get them out faster. Now this particular one, Uh, Allison, you need to feel a little more comfortable about this one because this was a mistake that was made by the pilot and it was caught by air traffic control, which is their job. So they were able to catch it.
1: Okay, I guess I guess that makes me feel better, though the mistake by the pilot doesn't make me feel that great. But why is there so much more traffic? Why are they having three times as many planes as they used to?
8: Well, it's just the the demand. There's more demand. There's more flights. There's more people traveling. I think it's after COVID, post-COVID, everybody's back in the idea that they can just go fly now. So every flight I've been on has been completely packed in just the last few months for sure. And they're just getting more and more packed. So the only way that the airspace system can handle more flights and full flights is by getting them off the runway faster. So they just keep getting them off the runway faster. So they need to slow these things down and get back to what is a sensible rate when we talk about departures. And it may delay it. It may be where you can't get the flights that you want to have at this point. But they have to do something about trying to slow this system down.
1: But, David, one last question before I bring in the panel. Is this are we back at the same amount of flights we were pre-COVID or is it even more than that?
8: Uh, it's actually exceeding what we were pre-COVID. I know that that was an issue for the airlines for a long time, but Boston specifically, uh, if we look at pre-COVID, uh, they were up around 24,000, but now we're up around 29,000 just for Boston specifically. But uh, so I, we have exceeded what we did before as far as the number of seats and the number of passengers moving.
1: Okay, stick around with us if you would, David, because we'll have more questions joining the conversation. Sure. We have business Wiz, and Axios reporter Erica Pandey. Former Senate candidate, Joe Pinion, and two of our favorite talkers, Elsie Granderson and John Avalon. Yes, (laughs) it's so true. Um, uh, Erica, welcome. So this one is a a little bit different. As David was just saying, this was a private plane and it was pilot error. I don't know why I'm supposed to feel better about that, but uh, don't private planes have
11: to follow the same rules or I guess not? I mean, I would guess so, right? Like, I think the the big thing here is that as as flyers, as consumers, you and I just don't know what's going on. All we see is a story like this every week, and we're seeing more and more of them, right, as people are trying to break back into travel after COVID. I didn't even know that there's more flights now than before COVID. I mean, all I know is that the FAA is definitely, you know, understaffed, underfunded. That's been reported. The budget in 2022 was $18.5 billion for the FFA, FAA, which is actually less than it was in 2004, adjusted for inflation so it's we've more flights you know we probably need better technology we're in the 2020s but why is the budget less than it was in 2004
1: that's a great question john you know there was a big infrastructure uh, bill that passed (laughs) isn't it supposed to be helping with some of this stuff? 25 billion dollars
12: worth of help on the way allegedly um and look i think that obviously can address a couple of fundamental issues one a lot of the technology is old that's a problem two we've got a capacity issue um and 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 you know you know, as David was saying earlier, this is partly about the demand, but that all means that we're going to have to increase the supply of runways, of of of, of airports regionally and other places. But that money's been allocated. And part of the problem is that. But it, none of that's going to take away human error. Burnt out pilots, folks being distracted. Uh, and that seems to be the cause of some of these near misses.
1: Yeah, great point. Joe, I mean, we do know that the, there have been. Uh... Uh, strikes at airline, you know, picketing of pilots and flight attendants, and they are feeling overworked.
13: Well, look, I think to your point, obviously we know that uh, more money would help, uh, but you also have to build a bridge to the future that you seek. And so whether you're talking about people who want to reimagine policing or whether you're talking about individuals that want to deal with the uh, diminished infrastructure that we have for airplanes or the overworked pilots, uh, what is the plan to make sure that people don't end up in a fiery casket on the runway? Uh, So I think that's just the hard truth. I
1: appreciate that because this is my Hey, now.
13: (laughs) I I just think, again, in this country... No one ever seems to care and take things seriously until people die. And so, this airline industry that has been subsidized by the American taxpayer, the greatest innovation is making sure that you can pay more money to carry your own bag. At some point, we have to ask the hard question when are you going to prioritize the safety and security of the people that are quite literally entrusting their family? Sounding in your like life, a Democrat, Joe. I don't know. Yeah, I think what? it's just common sense. I think <laughs> at the end of the day, I agree. Uh, Look, I think Republicans and Democrats want to make sure that they don't blow up on their way to grandma's house. I agree. <laughs> we, there, that's you know what wow. we can all get together on <laughs> but that I always grandma's, house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but
6: always what grandma's house? house what about grandpa's <laughs> house
13: what about grandpa's house no one talks about grandpa <laughs> never, never. You the house also belongs to grandma whether grandpa still lives there or not that's just yeah, the truth yeah, he, <laughs> really, he
1: makes an excellent <laughs> point about that I think the other point that Joe makes is that yes we do a good job of being reactive instead of proactive yes. with these
6: things yes but that's our culture about almost everything our medical system I mean look at our bridges and roads like we know from well, the American Society of Civil Engineers that much of our infrastructure is in much disarray and needs attention. And we've known that not for but we're doing five that years, now,
1: right? I mean, isn't this starting to change now? It's starting to
6: change, but the warning signs have been happening for decades. Like, literally decades they've been saying these bridges need to be repaired. This needs to be worked on. The FAA. I mean, I just read a story that the IRS is still using technology from, like, the 1950s and that they're understaffed. That,
12: that's strategic on the part of some <laughs> people. But, but no, I think, the, look, the flow through in all of what we're saying here is that too often in America, we wait for a crisis to solve a problem, even when the evidence is staring us in our face. And we cannot and should not do that when it comes to airline safety. It's been over a decade since a major disaster, thank God. We, we shouldn't have to wait to one.
1: So, David, understaffed and underfunded, um, that doesn't sound good. And so that is that taking its toll or is it the crumbling system that needs updating?
8: No, I think it's a little bit of both, but we have these plateaus of technology that we've had within the, within the FAA. And we talk about this new big budget that's come through for the FAA, but that doesn't mean that that money's actually appropriated. And this is an important point to make. Just because they said, hey, you're going to get $25 billion this year for this and this, it doesn't mean that that money's actually given to the FAA. I used to go to Congress and plead for money every year when I was with the FAA about 15 years ago. And when we would do that, they'd say, yeah, oh, well, this is great. I don't want to be the congressman that turns this down because I don't want to be the one standing there saying we had a crash because of me. So they, they'll say, yeah, let's get this money out there. And then they do, and they sign those bills. But when it comes time to actually appropriate that money and put it into the right pockets, that's where it all falls apart. And that's what needs to have some focus. And this goes back to having an FAA administrator that's in the seat more than just two years or three years or four years they need to be there for the entire infrastructure development they need to get an administrator that they can keep in there and isn't just some kind of uh, a political appointment they need someone that really has the backing behind them to make sure that these programs go through all the way through and don't just get dropped
1: yeah you make an excellent point uh stick around everybody thank you all for that perspective next We've got more on our breaking news, our breaking political news tonight. CNN projects that Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot will not return for a second term. The challengers, Paul Vallis, a longtime public school chief and Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, will advance to an April runoff. Breaking political news tonight, CNN projects the Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot, loses her bid for a second term. Paul Vallis, a longtime public schools chief, and Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson will now advance to an April runoff. Nine candidates were on the ballot for mayor, but none won more than 50 percent of the vote, so Vallis and Johnson will now face off. Lightfoot found herself with few allies in her bid for a second term and a host of powerful interests aligned against her. The police and teachers' union backed other candidates. Mayor Lightfoot conceding tonight. As we all know in life, in the end, you don't always win every battle. But you never regret taking on the powerful and bringing in the light. (laughs) To my friends across the country and my fellow mayors, never fear being brave and bold. Right. Okay, so how did the issues of crime, education, and COVID play out in this election? Let's talk about it and bring back the panel. John, I was just reading that uh, Lori Lightfoot is the first incumbent mayor in Chicago to lose after one term in 40 years. Yeah. So why? What happened here?
12: It's a stunning rebuke um, to her leadership. Um, she seems to have come in third in this sort of you know, nonpartisan open primary they have. But um, look, I think crime has not gotten better on her watch. That was a big part of her selling point. She was coming in as a prosecutor. Um, COVID, obviously, a lot of controversies inevitably for big city mayors, but also, I think, a persistent perception of weakness uh, and alienating a lot of key constituencies. From progressives to, as you saw, the two candidates who are going to advance that runoff in April, one was endorsed by the police union, the other endorsed by the teachers' union, which is particularly powerful in Chicago. So this is being set up as a pretty massive Uh, Test between the strength of two unions in in a city that is still not really gotten its mojo back where it needs to be.
1: Let's start with crime. I think we have the 2022 year-end report. And murder... uh, I don't know if we have it, but violent crime... Well, murder and shootings actually, believe it or not, ended down um, 18% from murder, shootings down 8%. But all of the other ones are up. Sexual assault, robbery, aggravated battery, burglary, theft... Vehicle theft. And of course, you know, crime, uh, all your opponents have to do is say that people feel scared, and that resonates with voters.
11: Yeah, I mean, you saw it, you're seeing it in other cities too, right? In New York, crime was a top issue for voters. That Republicans running on crime and public safety were able to flip House seats. In San Francisco, voters ousted Chesa Budin after a, a public safety kind of debate over that. So, same thing's happening in Chicago. What really stuns me, though, is just how how much of a flip this was. I mean, in 2019, she won all 50 wards of Chicago. She got 75% of the vote, I think it was. And tonight, I think the numbers are 16.4%. I mean, this is crazy.
1: Yeah, and um, also in 2019, Joe, there was this 11-day strike for the teachers. Yeah. And so teachers' unions did not... They, you know, soured on Mayor Lightfoot.
13: I, Light
9: I, I Light think
13: Light. that we're hopefully getting away from... Uh, kind of politicking by virtue signaling to, I say, politics for substantive results for the people. Uh, I think in Chicago, it is a state of emergency. It should be declared as much by the president, by the governor of that state. We've got more children shot by uh, in criminals, that we have people who have died uh, nationwide. Children from COVID. Uh, you look at the reading rates; they're abysmal. Fourteen percent of Black children are reading at proficient levels in 11th grade. Fourteen percent. In our translation, over 80 uh, percent of the children that are Black that live in the city of Chicago cannot read at grade level. That is child abuse. So, any way you want to slice it, from the people who are unsafe walking the streets, who are basically living in the cocoon of fear in their own living room, Chicago needs new leadership and. And I think that hopefully at this particular point in time, people can come together across political persuasions to say, I don't care who you want to lead, but the brand of leadership that's been provided in Chicago and other major cities at this injunction point in America is just insufficient and unacceptable.
6: I just think she didn't find a group to support her. Everything you just mentioned, I agree with. Having lived in Chicago for years, having grown up in Detroit with family members in Chicago and driven back and forth for years, everything you just said has always been part of Chicago. The difference is, is that the mayor has always been able to find a con- group of constituents that will always show up for them. And this mayor was not able to find that group of I, constituents. I would only add that she, because she made it such an integral part of her campaign. They I all think, do. I,
13: yes and no. Rahm, think-
6: Rahm Emanuel gave beautiful speeches about what he was going to do for this <laughs> and what he was going to do for that. And he got in there. You know what he did? He closed a whole bunch of schools in the black district. Right? Right. right. And then next thing you know, the progressive who got him in didn't like him, but he was smart enough to know, I need to make sure I take care of the rich people on the north side of the city, because they're the ones who are going to fund my campaign and make sure I have enough in my coffers to run for re-election. And that's exactly what happened. But, but Rom also was tough in a way that resonated. You
12: know, this is a city that built, you know, famously built by the Daily Machine, and that was when it was known as the city that worked. And I think that's what's been lost in Chicago right now. It's notable that this runoff is going to be some someone who worked for uh, Mayor Daley, the son, uh, ran the school system against somebody who's really got the strong backing of the teachers union. That's a pretty epic fight, particularly to Joe's point, in a city where uh, union politics and about round education are so
6: pivotal, often polarizing, but the outcomes aren't evident. Do you know who asked What he else was? Really corrupt. But he was really corrupt. Wait, Daly? Yes. Oh, yeah, man. They really corrupt. Right. Like, right. You, you're making it sound as if this angel came down and said Chicago. There, there is, ain't no. nothing no, angelic about no. Richard Daley. He, he but, knew who to take care of. That's it, my point. He, he knew, didn't take care of the right people. He knew how people. to
12: make it run. By the way, one of the greatest columns of all time, Mike Royko's column, Obit, for Richard Daley. Go read it. It's great.
1: <laughs> um, corrupt but effective. I yes. Got it. Thank you all very much for that. Next, we're going to talk about how to protect children from two of the biggest threats to their life that are out there. We'll explain. The House Homeland Security uh, Committee held a hearing today on immigration and border security. One Michigan mother gave emotional testimony about losing two sons to fatal fentanyl overdoses in 2020. And she begged lawmakers to do something to stop deadly drugs from flowing over the U.S.-Mexico border.
10: I had heard of the opioid epidemic. I thought, you know, people are getting prescription drugs and getting addicted and then getting it on the streets and that it affects their ability to work. I didn't know that people were dying Um, I didn't know that my boys were taking anything that could kill them. They didn't think that they were either. They thought that they were safe with pills. Now, if we had Chinese troops lining up along our southern border with weapons aimed at our people, with weapons of mass destruction aimed at our cities, you damn well know you would do something about it. We have... A weather balloon from China going across our country. Nobody died, and everybody's freaking out about it. But 100,000 die every year, and nothing's being done. Not enough is being done. Numbers are going up, not down. And you talk about children being taken away from their parents. My children were taken away from me.
1: What an awful fate. Back with me is uh, Erica Pandy, Joe Pinion, Lizzie Granderson, and John Avalon. Um, Erica, this is awful. I mean, she lost two sons to fentanyl. And what's happening, as we all know, is that kids don't know they're taking fentanyl. They think they're taking something else because these aren't labeled as fentanyl. So her sons, I believe, thought they were taking Percocet. And that's obviously not as deadly as fentanyl. And there are something like 15,000 pounds of fentanyl uh, last year, the Customs and Border Protection seized. I, I, what is the answer here?
6: So
11: that, that like, let's focus on that stat for a second. 15,000 pounds seized last year. That is enough to kill every single person in this country. So the scale of this problem is enormous. There have already been 42 pounds seized this year. And this isn't migrants who are traveling, you know, into the migrants and asylum seekers who are traveling into this country on foot between ports of entry. This isn't coming from those people. This is coming in tractor trailers across legal ports of entry. That's where all of, this, all of these drugs are being seized. And I feel like these problems are getting conflated. And it's very important to think of these as two distinct issues. And, you know, the, the solutions to the, the, the drug smuggling problem isn't about asylum seekers or migrants. It's about these high-tech scanners that look inside these trucks and can find, you know, all of these drugs. And we don't expensive. have enough of
1: those, you're saying.
11: Yeah, Exactly
1: like we're just undermanned at the border to right. look for these right so experts trailers. say that
11: we need more tech we don't need more hemming and hawing about migrants and asylum seekers Joe,
13: I think experts say both. I think that obviously we know we need more high-tech scanners. I think that even going back to 9/11, there's been a misallocation between where the breaches are at our border and where the resources are needed. But I think again, yes, you need to have more scanners. But let's be very clear: we've had 1.2 million people who have crossed our border and gotten away since uh, Joseph Robinette Biden placed his hand on Why a Why those have
1: gotten away? I mean, those are those are the there's... gotaways,
13: right? We're talking about that's different from the actual encounters, right? But if you're talking about if people who have gotten away. Right. But are you
1: capture? talking about people who have never shown up again for court or the people who have a court, an upcoming court date? No, I'm
13: talking about gotaways. I'm talking about people that we know every single month. There are people that we know are evading capture. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they're coming from. We don't know what they have on their person. Yeah. So all of these issues are connected. I think, again, the frustration that we have for the American people, the frustration that you hear from that mother, is that this crisis in its totality is not being taken seriously from the actual points of entry to the various points that people yeah. are crossing the border.
1: But I guess my point is, is Eric, as Eric was saying, we don't know that they're connected. If they're coming in tractor trailers, do why, don't we, just, why? why don't we just we get because, more scanners? Isn't that a much easier problem to solve than comprehensive immigration policy, which Congress hasn't been able to solve for decades? Certainly,
13: we can get the scanners tomorrow. Well, let's do that. But the point is that I think that the notion that we're going to ignore the reality that we are finding people who are crossing the border... Well, we don't ignore it. Control.
11: We just don't say they're the same issue. They're two different issues with two different solutions. I,
13: I think that the reality is to pretend that they are somehow... Disconnected, I think actually prevents us from getting to the. Well,
1: I'm just trying to find a solution. So if there, if one solution is more scanners and having more people scan the tractor trailers, that seems easier than co- relying on.
13: Okay, Congress well, but the, the, I don't hear President policy. Biden standing there behind the podium and saying we're going to well, have more scanners tomorrow.
6: Are you keeping Biden's name like this is a four-year-old issue?
13: No, I... I I mean,
6: this has been going on for much longer than one administration. I think I brought it up once. It's it's getting worse. It's getting worse, but let's go back to the beginning and begin to talk about, okay, how did this problem begin? What was happening then? How did it progress? Was it politicized? Did we try things and it didn't work out? Do we need to tweak them? I don't want to focus in on one administration because I think what that does is hijack the overall conversation mm-hmm. and makes it too partisan. This should not be a partisan well, conversation. I, I think most people agree it shouldn't be partisan. I, I think, to
13: my point, the perspective is... If you're talking about solutions, what can we do today? Sure, we can buy more scanners. We can also secure the border. We can also make sure that we give uh, the U.S. Customs and Border the support that they've asked for, which is more people on the ground to help them do those We're, things. So yeah. I think all of those things happen in tandem. I'm not saying that that's joke. It didn't happen just, when Joe Biden put his hand in the Bible. Fentanyl was happening back in 2016. Fentanyl was yeah, happening yeah. in 2015. That's but it's getting point. worse yeah. today. Go ahead, John. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, <clears throat> you know, the fentanyl spike, you know, it started spiking in, in 2020
12: under Trump. Um, it spiked continuously. In fact, it just, uh, you know, in January, they, they see four million dollars worth of fentanyl at the border, Seized it at the border through legal points of entry, to your point. Um, and that's where I think, look, Congress should, do, should be able to do comprehensive immigration reform. We, we all know what needs to be done. So do they. They don't have the political will to do it because many politicians on extremes on both sides in particular would rather demagogue the issue than deal with it. When it comes to the border crossings, Biden spoke extensively about fentanyl and State of the Union this year. Mm -hmm. Um, this is something that should be way beyond partisan politics. And we know people try to use it as a partisan weapon, which frankly is disrespect to the dead. And you break your heart when you see that mother crying for her children, but it is coming through legal ports of entry and that should be dealt with as drug interdiction. It's not the same thing as migrants crossing the border. Both are problems with the poorest border, but they're fundamentally different natures. I think, look,
13: let's be very clear. We have the border. We have people who are coming here illegally. That's caused a migrant crisis in major cities from California to Florida to New York City. Now we've got the mayor of New York City putting people on buses, sending them up to Canada. Yes, that is a fundamentally different issue. But the point is that if we're going to sit here and pick and choose how we're going to deal with issues on the border, I think that in and of itself is politicized. So, com- com-
12: simply- so But as a Republican, do you encourage your, your colleagues to pass comprehensive immigration reform?
13: Of course. Give a little, but, get a little? bit specificity of language, what does... Comprehensive immigration reform look like. More, I think that we border have the security to, pathway to citizenship look, sure, we, for the we, dreamers. Look, so we that. have to secure the border, right? That's not my opinion. Senator Chuck Schumer, back on that debate stage back in nineteen ninety eight, yeah. said that you can't have a serious conversation sure. about securing the border until you actually have secured it. By which now people sure. can take you seriously. So it has to start there. And I think that any other conversation is actually disingenuous and prevents people from putting down uh, their partisan blinders and engaging in the type of robust. Well, unless unless
1: that isn't going to solve the fentanyl crisis. So in other words, if, if what we need is to be well, looking at tractor trailers that are coming in legally,
13: let's try to well, solve I mean, that one to first. To be clear... If Even if you had more scanners tomorrow, we would stop more fentanyl, and if we save one life, it's worth it. But that does not actually address the overriding issue, which is that we have pharmaceutical warfare coming from the Chinese Communist Party that no one actually wants to take seriously. So, yes, we can sit here and nitpick on which party wants to be hard on what particular issue. But at the end of the day, if we're not actually going to engage with what is China is doing in a robust manner, then the we're cartels. actually not going. Really. Yep. Well, the cartels are at the behest of the Chinese Communist Party. There aren't chemists down there working uh, with the cartels, right? They're just following the instructions, sometimes which are written in Mandarin. Yeah, Erica,
11: go ahead. No, I just think, like you said, if there's so much of this coming in legally on vehicles that are the biggest vehicles that are on the road, I mean, there is a way to stop 84% of the drugs. Fentanyl came in legally through legal ports of entry. And then 16% came in between the ports of entry. And these are manned ports of entry. So there's got to be a quick solution here that doesn't get into all of these debates. Yes, and- if we
1: have to wait for comprehensive immigration reform to fix this fentanyl thing, we're in right. trouble. 42 yeah. pounds so- have come in this year
11: already. There's well,
6: the yeah. yeah. also the flip side, too. Quickly. We're very focused in on the border. <laughs> But what about the actual people of this country and having conversations about drug abuse mm-hmm. and, and making sure that we have the proper education in schools so that kids aren't tempted to do that? Remember, it's not just about fentanyl. We have to send out bulletins to say, hey, don't swallow Tide Pods. Like, there's all sorts of things in which we have to safeguard our kids against that we didn't have to when we were young. Well, I mean, I think that's also because we
13: have one college, one school counselor for every 400 children when the recommendation is around 200. So, again, the lack of funding for our students, the lack of infrastructure for our students, the lack of resources being spent on the border and with the Chinese Communist Party. All of it has led to where we are today, which is a mess.
1: Folks, thank you very much. We'll be right back. That Chinese balloon that floated across the continental U.S. got a lot of attention. And somehow it eclipsed other, weirder, unidentified flying objects.
7: Oh,
6: God!
0: <laughs>
1: Can you talk moving target? No,
0: I took an auto-train. Oh, uh,
6: okay. Oh
1: my gosh, dude. Wow. Okay. <laughs> 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 Former Navy fighter pilot Ryan Graves has a new article in Politico titled, We Have a Real UFO Problem and It's Not Balloons. He joins me now. Uh, Ryan, I'm with you. I mean, you you've seen weirder things than a Chinese balloon while you've been uh, in the sky, yes?
9: Certainly. We, we've seen things that we haven't been able to explain as simply a balloon. Uh, and as we've been talking about the various objects that have been shot down over the U.S., there's been a pretty clear bifurcation between what we've been calling a Chinese balloon and what these other three objects are. And while we don't know what they are, the fact of the matter is we should know what's above our head at any given time, whether it's a national security issue or whether it's a scientific uh, question, we need to figure out what what's above our heads. That
1: video that we just showed, were those, was that from your squad?
9: Yes, that was in 2015 while we were uh, aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, we were doing training missions, uh, preparing for our combat deployment. We recorded that object as well as other objects that were operating in our vicinity on a regular basis. And we simply didn't know what they were, but we did know that they were a safety hazard for our air crew and for our training missions. And we've been looking for the right way to report and deal with those issues ever since. Uh, With the Americans for Safe Aerospace, we're going to be pushing legislative action to ensure that the proper policies are in place so that pilots and aviators, both in the military and in the commercial markets, feel comfortable reporting these things, whether, again, it's a national security issue. We need to pay attention to make sure there's not security gaps or whether there is something unknown. We need to inquire on that.
1: But Ryan, what was that thing?
9: That's what we're still trying to figure out. So what we know is that it wasn't one of our uh, aircraft that we were operating within a vicinity of. We're fairly certain that it's not a foreign adversary at this point, but it still remains in the unknown bucket. And the, the primary issue here is that there are enough things that are in that bucket of unknown uh, that the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office within the DoD and various senators and, and Congress uh, congressmen and women are looking into this matter from the from the angle of national security in a way we haven't had before. Uh, with the recent shootdowns, we can see just how serious uh, of an issue it is, even if they are just balloons. Uh, just balloons can still be a national security issue when they're overhead our national security facilities and airspace.
1: But these things that you've seen, and in fact, I should let everybody know, you saw them a lot. This wasn't just a one-off once in 2015. You saw UFOs often, and these things, correct me if I'm wrong, they do things. They, they have sort of technology that you all couldn't identify
9: It's not that we were just seeing them out there and somewhat identifying something in in the distance. We're using a a multitude of sensors on our aircraft uh, and also distributed across multiple aircraft and different platforms that are detecting these objects within a sensor network. And so when we then correlate uh, those radar tracks with our infrared camera systems and eventually move in closer to detect them with our eyeballs, uh, we have have high confidence uh, in those track files and what we're experiencing. And what we're experiencing are things that we're really not sure what they are at the end of the day. Uh, they're performing a number of behaviors that we don't recognize, such as the ability to stay stationary in very high winds uh, with no lifting platforms, no surfaces, but also to maintain speeds of 0. 0.6 to 0. 0.8 Mach, which is upwards of 350 knots. Uh, and they can do that for, uh, for many hours on end. Uh, we, we don't have the ability to do that in our aircraft. and We simply don't know who's operating these or what their intent are.
1: I think we have another clip of one from your squadron of them seeing it, um, as you said, in high wind and operating differently.
13: It's rotating. Oh my gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots from the west. Oh, I think, dude.
1: And so, when you say that you you know you want to get to a point where people feel comfortable reporting them, do they not? Do people not feel comfortable reporting these sightings?
9: They still don't. And I'll I'll only speak within the aviation community, but it's it's a big risk to to go out publicly on this topic. At the end of the day, if you're going to highlight yourself, at least in the the military aviation communities, for something like this, there's very little uh, upside for you. Um, We're very busy aviators. uh, in the U.S. Navy, Air Force and the military in general are very busy just doing their, their regular job and they're not equipped to go out and do research uh, on, on these mysterious objects. Uh, on the commercial sector, um, people work for a very long time on, in a single career at a single company and they're a single signature away on a medical uh, evaluation to say they're unfit for flying and to lose that career. Uh, so there's really just very little motivation uh, to speak publicly about this, especially when it's been uh, communicated by their employers and historically that this is a somewhat off-topic, off, off topic, or excuse me, off-limits topic.
1: Mm-hmm. And last, Ryan, do you have a theory on what these are?
9: Well, I again, I have a theory of what they're not. Uh, and I do have a method, I think, of trying to figure out what these are. I. You know, we know that we can detect these objects. We are starting to recognize as a government and as a society that we have an obligation to figure out what these are to ensure safe flying. And so I think we can figure it out. I think that is an answerable question, although not quite yet.
1: Ryan Graves, thanks for sharing all this with us. Uh, It's really fascinating. And obviously we do need to get some answers about all of this that the balloon has exposed. Thanks so much for being here.
9: It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: All right. Meanwhile, climate scientists are sounding the alarm. Antarctic sea ice is now at record low levels. So CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, is on his way to the South Pole right now. And he's going to give us a first-hand report. Sea ice levels dipping below 2 million square kilometers for the first time since satellites began monitoring this in 1978. What does that mean? CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, is on his way to Antarctica right now. Bill, what are you finding?
3: Allison, greetings uh, from the tip of Patagonia, a beautiful place, uh, sometimes called the end of the world. Uh, But we're not talking about sort of the Book of Revelations existential end of the world here. We are talking about Antarctica, which is right on the other side of that mountain range. Those mountains are a national park here on the Chile-Argentina border. We're going to get on a boat, go around those across the Drake Passage to Antarctica with some whale scientists uh, here in a couple of days. But the news today is about how much that place is changing and how much it affects all of us long term. We're talking about sea ice, and just for perspective, uh, in 2014, uh, in the summer, there would be about 7 million square miles of sea ice all around this continent down here at the South Pole. Now, the National Snow and Ice Center out of Colorado confirms it's just over 700,000 square miles. So that's a 90% loss in less than a decade, and what is really worrisome is that the big glaciers like Thwaites this is a glacier, a frozen river the size of Florida, which is holding back masses of inland ice. is hanging on by a fingernail. Uh, they sent down robotics that look like sort of a torpedo underneath that ice, the ice fin, to take pictures. It's melting in bizarre ways that were never predicted. And if that thing pops, it could create a sea level rise pulse. Right now, the trend is, though, that all of these signs are pointing towards a world with very different coastlines than we have grown accustomed to. It's a warning to to leaders on the coast to prepare infrastructures, to prepare citizens for what this means. But mostly the top line is that for a long time people thought the North Pole was melting, the South Pole would be okay. Now both ends of the planet uh, are heating up in ways that even science would not have predicted a couple of, uh, even five years ago, amazing flock of birds overhead. I'm in heaven down here with all this South American wildlife, and of course that's at risk as, as these ecosystems change uh, down here as well. And it seems so far away. We're at the bottom of the world, but all of this adds up. Our systems are so connected. So uh, the drought stories I was doing in Utah last week about towns, the fastest growing uh, metro center in the country, growing so fast that they're not sure how, how long they can grow given the lack of water. The water cycles. That are affected by these currents by these systems are changing in ways that are getting just freakish blizzard events uh in southern california at the same time as as heat waves uh, uh in the summers up in british columbia so this unfortunately is the new normal and the warning is uh, knowledge is power preparation is key uh the sea level as we know it is is changing before our eyes but the sciences are getting in front of this allison and hopefully um The leaders, uh, the decision makers are paying attention to what's happening both at the top and the bottom of our blue marble. I'll send it back to you.
1: Bill, thank you very much. Bill always finishes with some sort of bright spot so that I don't feel existential dread because he knows (laughs) that I don't know how he does his job with all that. Check out this map, okay? This shows the top 100 places around the world that are most vulnerable to the climate crisis. And there's a lot of them and a lot of places that we all want to go. So let's bring in our panel. Is there a bucket list place that you all have that you are aware of climate change that you want to go to soon before it disappears, Erica?
11: Yeah, I mean, I think of the country my parents are from. I'm a first-generation American. My parents are from Nepal, and it's right there on those red spots. And it has some of the most spectacular trekking you know, routes in the, in the world with the Himalayas. You've got Everest Base Camp, Annapurna Base Camp. To go to these places is becoming more and more dangerous with ice just falling on people. The, the, the length of the season that you can you know, even try to summit at Everest is getting shorter and shorter. So you're seeing literally traffic jams on Everest of people trying to get to the top. And then you know, more locally, Glacier National Park in Montana, some, I mean, CNN reported some of those glaciers have shrunk by 80% in recent years. So there's just so many places and time is running out.
13: My gosh, that's incredible. Um, Joe, what's your bucket list place? I mean, look, I I just haven't been to Fiji, so I'd love to go there. But look, I I think we have to have a little bit of optimism. I think a lot of people, my old friend Bob Inglis, former congressman from South Carolina, Mm -hmm. I believe in rulers. I believe in thermometers. And I think most Republicans do, too. That's what the Pew Research Center says. Uh, So again, I think we have to have real global communities built talking about the interconnectedness of the world. Uh, 87% of the emissions we're trying to curb come from our good friends over there in China uh, and also places like India. So they're from beyond our borders. We need global plans to deal with the fact uh, that this is an interconnected issue.
6: LZ? Alice, I'm going to be basic as hell. Go. I want to go back to Fire Island. I haven't been about 15 years and it's disappearing.
1: It is? It, it is. It's an island. It's just being It's just, being, it's
6: just right over here yeah. and it's sinking. It's disappearing because of climate change. In fact, there's a lot of, there's a couple of uh, traditional LGBTQ hot spots around the country, no pun intended, that are disappearing because of climate change, and Fire Island happens to be one of them.
1: Okay, I want to go, too. I've
6: never been there. You've never been to Fire Island?
1: No, I go to Provincetown a lot, and I pray that P-Town is not just a... P-Town is journey. one of those P-Town's spots. i was afraid is that you were going to say that. that. I don't want to... Yeah. La, 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 Don't hear that. Go, on, go ahead, John.
12: I mean, look, I, I, the whole doom uh, tourism in industry seems a little bit... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Grim, but, yeah, but it's I, I, a I, But I, I think about where, where my grandparents were from, you know, Greece, a little village in Turkey, Costa Rica, Argentina. You know, those, those places that um, you know you just can't anticipate how they'll be changed, and and what what villages or coastlines that existed when they were there won't be available for for, for my kids. And I think that's that's the stakes that we got to really focus on and, and ramp up. I'm glad you mentioned Bob Inglis. Um, this is the kind of guy we need to be changing more yeah. to, but yeah, that that's just uh, you know.
1: Mine was Alaska. Alaska, yeah, Alaska. Alaska, because you know that's changing too. But um, but I'm happy to go at, to any of yours as well. That we, is we, great. We go to DC, that's...
13: we get them to start crafting policy that makes sense, not you know. We, Paris. Should we, should we all go? Should we just do like a junket?
1: Yes, I would love that. <laughs> I, like I would love that. List. We'd love to hear yours as well. You can find me on social media. Thanks for watching. Our coverage continues.